because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back, everyone. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. Today, we're happy to have Jasmine Rapley on again. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. This is exciting. So for today's episode, we're going to have Jasmine talk about um, a YouTube channel that she started. I think it was a few months ago. Um, so do you want to tell us like what it's called and give us a little bit of a background behind that? Sure. Um, so this YouTube channel I've started is called Temple Light. And it's basically just a YouTube channel to help people prepare, go through it's a, sorry, it's a YouTube channel to help people prepare to go through the temple. And it's just a small little thing right now, but it's a passion project of mine. I've, I love the temple. I think temples of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are the most empowering and beautiful and inspiring institutions. And I feel like it's hard to communicate that when there are certain things that we aren't supposed to be talking about. And it's hard to get people to enjoy and love the temple when the idea of religion itself is starting to become less and less attractive in today's secular societies. And so I just decided to put together some materials that I think can be helpful for people. This all started because I, A, love the temple, but I love teaching temple prep. I think it's such a fun way to join all sorts of different gospel topics together because it's not just scripture and it's not just gospel principles it's not just the old testament or church history it's all of those things together the temple is a very eclectic topic and so i love that i can piece together all sorts of different things to come up with inspiring thoughts and to learn new things about the temple all the time and most recently i had a sister who was preparing to go to the temple for her mission and so i kind of privately taught her a temple prep class, but then COVID came around and that delayed her mission and going through the temple. And so, you know, fast forward like nine more months and now she's finally ready to go through the temple and go on her mission. And so then we decided, well, let's just do it again. So refresh on the things we've learned and, and help me refine some of the things I've been teaching. And so I did a temple prep class for her again. And that gave me a really good opportunity because it was in a private setting to explore things I wouldn't have otherwise in a church curriculum setting because the church has a very specific curriculum that you're supposed to follow. You know, lesson number one is we are worth or we have to be worthy to go to the temple. Lesson number two is on the plan of salvation and things like that. And so this gave me an opportunity to kind of start from scratch and said, okay, if I was doing this from scratch and wanted to give a temple prep lesson, the way I think would make most logical sense from my perspective, this is how I would do it. And so I really enjoyed that experience. And after that, I decided I need to, you know, put this somewhere so that others can enjoy it as well. And maybe others can, can learn and, and glean some things from it as they're preparing to go to the temple in a respectful way that doesn't, you know, break any of our covenants. We're going to do this very respectfully and reverently. And so, um, 
originally a long time ago, years ago, I thought about, you know, putting together a book or something, but, you know, books are so uh, not the way of the earth these days. And so I figured, well, I should maybe, you know, put together some videos and I'm not a video editor and I'm not very skilled at most things when it comes to YouTube, but I'm really passionate about the temple and I'm happy to learn more about those skills in addition to uh, learning and researching more about the temple itself to try to come up with some new ways to look at the temple to help people as they're going through for the first time or have gone through and still don't love the temple or still are uncomfortable with certain aspects to go back and maybe learn something they didn't think about before. So that's kind of how it all started. Um, but I also hope that uh, part of the purpose is also to fill the internet and fill YouTube with positive content from a faithful perspective in the church since right now you'll YouTube or Google something or search something on YouTube about the temple and you're pretty much only going to get very illicit, slightly blasphemous things. And so this is hopefully a way to provide some faithful content that people won't be nervous to click on, that they can get information on the temple and feel like they learned something new, but also feel like they weren't breaking any rules about what they're supposed to talk about when it comes to the temple. I love that. And thanks for doing that. I definitely think we, we need as much light as possible on YouTube right now. So I love what you're doing. Um, and yeah, I think with the temple, it's, it's an amazing experience, but it's so different than a lot of the other things in the church that we're accustomed to. And I think a lot of people have questions, but they're like, okay, what can I ask about? Um, they don't know, like, even where to like get answers to certain things. So I think your YouTube channel is really nice because it kind of it kind of identifies what the prophets have said. Hey, here's what we can talk about. Here's some of the more sacred things that we just talk about in the temple. And I think it's just, I just really love the perspectives that you give. So thank you for what you're doing. And I'm going to ask you a few different questions and feel free to, yeah, chime in and just, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Of course. Um, and I agree so that, oh, sorry. No, go. I was going to add that, yeah, the temple is so starkly different from everything we do in the church, or at least that's how it seems because we have a specific way of doing things in church when we uh, baptize people or when we partake of the sacraments. Uh, but the more I've been studying the scriptures and ancient history, my uh, undergraduate degree is in ancient Near Eastern studies. So I love ancient history and I love studying the scriptures. Uh, but the more I've been studying those things, the more it's come out that the temple is embedded in so much of that and so much of the scriptures, if we're just looking for, it, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we'll see principles that are taught in the temple over and over through the scriptures. And so it's maybe not as foreign as it would first appear. And I think that uh, helping people mitigate that shock factor is just studying the scriptures more or looking for those temple themes and all of a sudden, the things that seemed so foreign when you first went through the temple become very familiar and even very endearing to you. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so yeah, the, the first question I wanted to start with is, so why is the temple so secretive? That is a great question because that's the one that a lot of investigators ask when they, you know, wonder what goes on in the temple. And it's, you know, even things that we ask today, well, if those things are all in the scriptures, why don't we talk about them openly in a context of the temple? And I think there's a few reasons for that. 
One of which is something Elder Maxwell talked about uh, a long time ago. He talked about how we would receive more revelation if we wouldn't, or we would receive more spiritual experiences if we wouldn't talk so much about them. And I think there's different perspectives on this. Some people believe that when you have spiritual experiences, you need to share and testify. And others, sometimes if you have a spiritual experience, you need to keep it sacred. And I think there's a time and place for both. But what I like from Elder Maxwell's perspective is that the temple is a really sacred place and we try to keep it sacred by setting it apart with uh, sacred space. The temple itself is more elaborate than our other buildings and sacred time. I mean, when you go in, you're supposed to turn your cell phones off and you're kind of out of time for that sense. And we also try to create sacredness by being reverent about it and not talking about it. And for many people who go through the temple, that's some of the most spiritual moments they have in their entire lives. And so it, it respects those sacred moments by keeping them sacred. And sometimes that means not talking about them. Other times that means talking about them reverently when prompted by the spirit. Um, another reason we don't necessarily talk so openly about the temple, uh, those temple ordinances that aren't baptism, is the idea that there's greater responsibility that comes with greater knowledge. And when we enter the temple, we do make certain covenants with the Lord. And with those covenants comes obligations on our part. And it would be unfair to subject God's children to that higher standard before they're willing to adhere to those covenants or if they're unwilling to receive it. And so for that reason, we also keep some of the things we do in the temple sacred and discreet so that the sacred knowledge that we're given from the temple is not bestowed upon someone before they're ready to adhere to the covenants associated with that, such as living a higher law of chastity or living a higher law of consecration. Um, and Elder Packer said that it's, it was never intended that knowledge of these temple ceremonies would be limited to a select few who would be obliged to ensure that others never learn of them. It is quite the opposite, in fact. With great effort, we urge every soul to qualify and prepare for the temple experience. And so while on the outside, it may seem like a very exclusionary thing that we keep it secret and secluded from others, in principle, it really is inclusionary. We desire all to ultimately and eventually receive those covenants. We just hope that you're doing it in the right time so that you're prepared to live those commitments by the time you're being bestowed that sacred and special knowledge. And then the last reason I think, and I think there's a lot more reasons too, but the last reason that I've really thought of why we keep the temple more secretive is this concept of the mysteries of God. And this is a concept we find in the Book of Mormon and also in the Doctrine and Covenants. Nephi talks about how he desired to know the mysteries of God and how the Lord then did visit him. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, it also talks about how those who are faithful will have the privilege of receiving the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And that concept seems esoteric and maybe a little confusing, but the idea of the mystery is in the ancient world, it was just thought of a secret revealed by God. And so when those, so when God visits man and when man enters into the presence of God symbolically, he's entering into what in the Old Testament is known as his divine council. And this divine council is, you know, you're ascending to the mountain of the Lord. You all of a sudden behold 
a vision of God on his throne in uh, surrounded by the heavenly hosts and that's being admitted into his council and in that location God then bestows sacred information on his prophets this happened to Lehi this happened to Ezekiel and Isaiah and other Old Testament and Book of Mormon prophets where they had visions where they were admitted into God's divine council or had a vision of the heavenly hosts and God gave them sacred knowledge some of the knowledge they were commanded to share, like testify and preach repentance to the people, but other knowledge they were asked to keep hidden. And that's kind of the same pattern we see in the temple. In a lot of the architecture of temples is focused on us ascending the mountain of the Lord, step by step, progressively getting holier and holier until we enter into the presence of God symbolically in the celestial room. And so we're just trying to replicate that same pattern of heavenly ascent that biblical prophets followed and in respecting the sacred trust that God gives to those people. And so likewise, uh, just as God gives us sacred knowledge uh, in exchange for us adhering to some covenants, there's also a little bit of an expectation of that we're kind of prophets as well. If we enter into the presence of God, we are suddenly commissioned to be his messengers as well, to preach repentance when we're called upon and to defend the kingdom of God, uh, even unto the laying down of our lives. So those are just kind of the few reasons I've thought over the years of why the temple is secretive. But I know there's lots of other reasons out there and it's just a lifetime of learning to figure out more. Yeah, I love that. I love you mentioned kind of that it's, it's a scriptural pattern where in the scriptures, there are times when the Lord gives them stuff and sometimes they'll tell them to go out and tell people. And sometimes those things, the Lord tells them not to. So I think it's, I like, I love you pointing that out. And then just the idea of, um, we're like, we're judged by the knowledge that we have. So if someone's not ready to like keep certain commandments and keep a certain law, it's not always the most Christ-like thing to give them that if they're not ready for it. Right. We're, we're told that we will be condemned for the knowledge that we have. And so if we're giving people extra knowledge before they're ready, um, that's unfair to them. Yeah. I'm, so I guess the, my follow-up question from that is, so what are, what in the temple can we talk about and what have we been asked not to talk about? Well, Elder Bednar in the, not last conference, but a few conferences ago, really made it very clear. And I loved that he laid it out in conference for everyone. And he, after his conference address, he directed everyone to go to temples.churchofjesuschrist.org to learn more. And there is a lot of wonderful information where the church is starting to be a little bit more open about the basic structure of the temple. But in this conference talk, he taught the things that we are not supposed to discuss. And he said, because we love the Lord, we always should speak about his holy house with reverence. We should not disclose or describe these special symbols associated with the covenants we receive in sacred temple ceremonies. Neither should we discuss the holy information that we specifically promise in the temple not to reveal. So basically all this means is that we're not supposed to reveal certain symbols, names, and signs that are made in association with covenants made in the temple. Everything else in the temple is pretty much fair game as long as we do it respectfully and, rever and reverently. Elder Bednar also talks about when he's discussing the things we can talk about, he says, 
um, that the temple is the house of the Lord. And so everything in the temple points us to our savior, Jesus Christ. We may discuss the basic purposes of and the doctrine and principles associated with temple ordinances and covenants. So this really gives us a lot of latitude. We can discuss principles, doctrines, and basic outlines and basic purposes of the temple. And we can talk about Jesus Christ. And that pretty much covers everything we do in the temple, except the specific tokens, names, and signs that are made in association with covenants in the temple. Those are the few things we are asked not to disclose. And everything else, as long as we do it respectfully, reverently, uh, and with, with an awareness of who our audience is and who we're talking to, we don't want to cast our pearls before swine. But as long as we're doing it carefully, we can talk openly about what goes on in the temple and what its purpose and meanings are. I love that. And it, yeah, that church website, it really is awesome. The, the resources that are there on um, where you can learn about these, these different covenants that you're making. You can learn more about the consecration or the law of the gospel or whatever. And they have like talks and they have scriptures that they reference. I think that's a very helpful, great resource that they have. Um, so in the temple, um, we have a variety of ordinances. There's baptisms for the dead. Um, there's the initiatory, there's the endowment, and then there's sealing. Um, can you explain kind of the purpose behind some of these different ordinances? Sure. So one of the basic questions about the temple in general is why ordinances at all? I mean, if you're just living a good life, why do you need to do specific rituals in order to get to heaven? And that's kind of what Latter-day Saint theology entails. We say that in order to reach the highest exaltation of the celestial kingdom, you need to be baptized, receive your initiatory endowment and sealing ordinance. Those are the ordinances of exaltation. And so there's quite a few bars you've got to pass to get to Latter-day Saint heaven, if you will. Um, and so some may wonder, well, why that's necessary if someone is living a comparably good life. And there, are, again, are a lot of answers to that. And I don't profess to have a doctrinal end all. But one thing I've thought about is how ordinance, the word ordinance means law in its basic sense. I mean, a city will pass a city ordinance, which means you can't park on the street at certain times of year. You can't go blow up fireworks at certain times of year. And, and that's kind of the basic root behind the word ordinance. And we know that our God is a God of order. And 2 Nephi 9 and other places in scripture talk about how there is a law given. And without a law, there is no punishment. Without a punishment, there's no uh, sin. And without sin, there is no God. Ultimately, the, the comparisons keep going up and up and up until the conclusion is if we didn't have laws by which we were supposed to abide, God could not exist. Our God exists because he is a God of order. And there are consequences for every action and reaction that occurs in our universe and in our world. And so because of that, I believe that God has established ordinances or laws or covenants by which he asks us to abide so that he can exist and so that we can exist with him, so that we can be exalted. We must be able to adhere to certain covenants and commitments, uh, covenants to obey his commandments, covenants to uh, sacrifice everything we have to building the kingdom of God, things like that. And by doing so, God can then accept us into his kingdom. 
And as far as the specific ordinances, um, all of them are ordinances of salvation and exaltation. So the purpose of them is to help us gain access to God's kingdom. Uh, but each one has different functions, different purposes, and different methods by which they do it. So baptism is the first ordinance of salvation. Nephi talks about baptism as the gate by which we enter into. That is our first step on the straight and narrow path, or as we like to talk about today a lot, the covenant path. It's our first step. And baptism specifically has to do with the fourth article of faith. And it's about faith, repentance, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so baptism is about washing and anointing us uh, with God's Holy Spirit and preparing us for the other ordinances. It's really a preparatory ordinance, but it brings us into the community of the believers. It uh, gives us access to the church and then to the later ordinances. The initiatory serves a very similar purpose to baptism. Uh, in the initiatory, we perform washing rituals and anointing rituals, and also naming rituals and clothing rituals. So it's kind of like baptism with a few extra things added on. Now in the initiatory today, we don't do full immersion uh, baptisms in water like we do in a baptismal font today. Instead, it's more of a symbolic washing, but we're washed, we're anointed, we are clothed, and we're given a new name. And the purpose of that is to prepare us again for the next ordinance, the endowment. Every ordinance is preparing us for the next one. And washing us cleanses the inner vessel, anointing us, endows us with sanctity and holiness. Clothing symbolizes a lot of things like the atonement and our personal purity and progressing to a new stage of life. And receiving a new name is also about reaching a new stage of your life and entering a new phase of existence. You're transforming yourself into a better, higher being. The endowment is similarly preparing us for the sealing ordinance. It's preparing us for heaven. And the specific purpose of the endowment is pretty explicit to help us learn how to enter into God's presence. And Brigham Young specifically had a quote that laid it out very clearly. Brigham Young said, let me give you a definition in brief. Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you after you have departed this life to enable you to walk back to the presence of the father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, being enabled to give them the keywords, the signs and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood and gain your eternal ex exaltation in spite of earth and hell. So it's, he's pretty explicit and clear there that the purpose is to help us learn how to enter into God's presence. And we do that by learning about certain keywords, signs, and tokens made in association with covenants. We promise to do certain things for the Lord, like obey him, live a certain law of sexual morality, consecrate our property and our lives to building up the church and God's kingdom. And in return, we receive certain signs and tokens and symbols that help us to gain access to God's kingdom ultimately. And in addition to just that pragmatic exchange, in the endowment, we learn about our origins. We view a presentation of the plan of salvation. We start with creation and fall, the atonement, and ultimately what leads us back into God's presence. And so it's about learning our origin story and learning about why we're here and where we're going. And it can be quite the ex inspiring experience to feel like you are a choice son or daughter of God going from 
our fallen state that we all are, all of us make mistakes and how despite all of that, because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, we can be purified, cleansed and enter into God's presence. And then the purpose of the sealing ordinance is really the crowning ordinance of uh, the restoration. And it's so important and beautiful and it's wonderful. And I don't have time to go into all of that, but for the most part, it's a covenant you're making with God and with someone else. It's, the, it's a marriage ceremony and it's a sealing ceremony that seals you to your spouse, seals you to God, and it's God putting his seal or his stamp of approval on that union. And every other covenant you make in the church is usually just between you and God. It's baptism, it's just you and God. I'm going to obey those basic principles of the gospel, initiatory, it's you and God, endowment, the same thing. But when you get to the sealing ordinance, that's the real test of the, the law of consecration in a way, because now it's not just about you, it's about you and someone else. It's both of you in a committed relationship, partnership, and sealing uh, relationship and God. And so I think the sealing ordinance in a lot of ways is the test of how purified we're trying to become as human beings. And that's not to say that once you get sealed, you've, you've made it and you're perfect. It's the opposite. But um, being willing to enter into the sealing ordinance is signaling your willingness to now put your life on the line with God and also with someone else that now together you are working towards exaltation as a team, not just by yourself anymore. So that's kind of just an overview of some of the purposes of those ordinances, but I know there's a lot more and I'm sure even you've thought of other things that I haven't about why we do certain things in the temple. Yeah, that's a, that's a great overview. I love the, the different explanations you gave. Something that was explained to me in my mission when a general authority visited for like a zone conference is they just mentioned to us that, yeah, the endowment, essentially it's a role play. We're role-playing an event that will one day happen when we're literally going to approach God. Um, so that was kind of like a, that kind of like, it kind of clicked for me right there when I heard that. Um, That's yeah, true. I, and it's really, it's harder, I feel like, to get that sense today than it may have been in earlier iterations of the temple ceremonies. Because today, most people experience the endowment uh, on a TV screen or a projection screen or you're watching a video and then at the end you're given certain instructions and you make certain covenants and you progress through those, those patterns. Whereas the original pioneers, they had a live endowment and, and we still do technically have live endowment ceremonies that happen, but they're quickly being phased out as those temples go under renovation. Um, but the live endowment ceremony, I think really emphasized the role playing aspect of the endowment. It, and in many ways, the endowment ceremony is what's known in religious studies as a ritual drama. It's a ritual, but it's also theatric. There are elements of both. You're telling a story, but because it's a ritual, the participants are playing in that story in a large way. And so in the uh, live endowment ceremonies, you had Adam and Eve as characters that were really participating with you and breaking the fourth wall in quite a few instances. And uh, in addition to that, you had the other characters also were double playing as the temple officiators. Today, you see characters on a screen and then the officiators in the room with you are separate characters. But in a live endowment, everyone's playing all of those roles. And so it seems more seamless. And as a participant, you really feel part of it more. As a woman, you feel like, oh, I get it. I am like Eve and she's helping me through 
my start in creation towards getting back to the God's presence. Or if you're a man, oh, I am supposed to view myself as Adam. And they do indicate that verbally, but uh, it's maybe just more subtle today. Yeah, I love that. Um, the next thing I wanted to to kind of ask you about is I feel like growing up in the church, oftentimes we kind of have this kind of simplistic view of, oh, guys have the priesthood, girls don't have the priesthood or whatever. But then you go to the temple and some of some of those um, that past view, I guess, gets kind of challenged and we, we learn a lot more. Could you kind of tell us a little bit about that, kind of how we can look at women and the priesthood in light of the temple? For sure. And I certainly don't have any definitive treatment of women in the priesthood. It's a complicated topic and lots of people have done amazing work before me, like uh, Valerie Hudson-Kastler has done excellent work and uh, Barbara Morgan Gardner, Sherry Dew, Jonathan Stapley, Wendy Ulrich, all of these people have done their piece to contribute to our understanding of what it means for women to have the priesthood or women's roles within the priesthood. But as I've been studying the temple, I've really come to appreciate women's priestess power in the temple. And like you said, we tend to have a simplistic view of priesthood, meaning deacons, priests, teachers, patriarchs, etc. And that structure is what we envision when we think of what the priesthood is. And the brethren have been doing a really great job of late challenging that paradigm as well in general conference, especially in the last five years, they've been talking a lot more and more about how, oh, women participate in the priesthood too. Women in their callings, they're operating under priesthood power. And so they're starting to clarify more and more. And I look forward to even more clarification. Uh, but still, there's a little confusion and ambiguity since, okay, well, men have the priesthood, but women also operate in the priesthood, but we don't have the priesthood. How is that fair? How does that work? But uh, I think the temple does a lot to clarify that because we know that uh, the priesthood is God's power on earth. That's how we conceptualize it. And in the Latter-day Saint faith, we split that in between Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek priesthoods. And each of those have certain functions. Aaronic is the lesser, Melchizedek is the higher priesthood. Um, Aaronic deals with the ministering of angels and those first principles and ordinances in the Melchizedek priesthood deals with the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And so they're the ones that administrate a lot of temple ordinances. But within that, I believe that we can conceptualize different aspects of the priesthood. We first have the ecclesiastical priesthood, and this is the establishment of deacons, teachers, priests, elders, bishops, patriarchs, etc. that those lists and hierarchies of offices is the ecclesiastical or organizational aspect of the priesthood. And we need those in order for the church to operate. The church has to have some structure and that's the structure that this church operates in, having those different priesthood offices that have specific roles, specific responsibilities. But in addition to that, I think there's another aspect of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods that both men and women participate in. And that's kind of what I like to refer to as the temple priesthood. Uh, Jonathan Stapley in his book, The Power of Godliness, he referred to it as the cosmological priesthood. Barbara Morgan Gardner in her book on the priesthood power of women has called it the familial or patriarchal priesthood. I like to just call it the temple priesthood because that's really where we see it in play. But basically 
when we go to the temple, we understand very clearly that men and women have harmonious and compatible roles with each other. And there's not necessarily a very clear hierarchy there. Men as well as women officiate in temple ordinances in the endowment ceremony and in the initiatory, especially. Uh, in the initiatory, men and women separate into uh, separate rooms. And so women, when they do their initiatory, they're privately um, performing that ceremony with other women. And the women who are officiating that are doing things like laying their hands on the heads of the women and blessing them and bestowing upon them beautiful promises from the Lord. And the same thing for the men. Uh, male officiators are place, placing their hands on the participant's head and blessing them with glorious promises from God. And so we see that there's a lot more parity and egalitarianism when it comes to performing ordinances in the temple than we do in the church. And I think that's because the, there are two aspects of the priesthood within uh, even the Aaronic and Melchizedek, there's ecclesiastical offices, and then there's this temple priesthood and priestesshood that we have, because both men and women are told in the endowment ceremony that they're prepared to officiate in ordinances of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods. So, I mean, it exists in both places. And what I love about the priesthood, priesthood power of women is that it expands beyond the priesthood or it expands beyond the temple as well. Both men and women have this temple priesthood or this familial patriarchal cosmological priesthood, whatever you want to call it. And men exclusively are have stewardship over this cosmological priest or sorry, men exclusively have stewardship over this ecclesiastical priesthood. And so there still seems to maybe be some disparity there. Like, okay, well, men exclusively have this ecclesiastical priesthood and women have access to this temple priesthood, but also men do. So is that really equal? And I think what it comes down to is a paradigm that Valerie hudson Castler has talked about before that I really like. She talks about this paradigm of the two trees that in the Garden of Eden, there's the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And she argues that essentially men through the ecclesiastical priesthood have stewardship over the tree of life. And that is the way that we gain access back to our heavenly father. Men have stewardship over performing specific ordinances of salvation that help lead God's children back through the veil of mortality into the presence of God uh, and into eternal life, into salvation and exaltation. And uh, Valerie Hudson argues that women have sacred stewardship then over the function of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is to bring life into the world, to escort sacred life from premortality through the veil into mortality. And that essentially takes the form of mothering and childbirth. And I know that's cliche because people complain all the time that, well, don't say that men have the priesthood and women uh, can be mothers because it's just not the same and it's not analogous. And as Valerie Hudson puts it, which I think is really good, she says that's it misses the point entirely. She says some are fond of saying that motherhood and priesthood are not analogous, but that misses the point. The purpose of priesthood is to become a father in heaven. The purpose of priestesshood is to become a mother in heaven. So priesthood and priestesshood are analogous 
as are fatherhood and motherhood, which are the ends of the priesthood and priestesshood. And so men have stewardship over this tree of life to bring souls out of this world through their ecclesiastical priesthood. And women have a sacred priestesshood responsibility to escort life into the world. And that is especially true, I think, in the context of the sealing ceremony. I think that it's true that you don't have to be a Latter-day Saint to give birth and to be a mother, but it's also true that you don't have to be a Latter-day Saint to say, I command you to be healed. But there are specific things um, that the Latter-day Saint faith uh, offers. And well, let me rephrase. Um, you, you require priesthood authority in the Latter-day Saint faith to command someone to be healed today. And likewise, to truly uh, embody priestesshood it requires being sealed in the new and everlasting covenant. And so when we talk about children being born in the covenant, I think maybe we should take that a little bit more seriously, that the process of mothering and childbirth in context of the new and everlasting covenant, when you are sealed by the power of God, is a holy sacrament. It's a sacred part of the covenant path that women specifically have stewardship over. and. Uh, President Packer, or no, not President Packer, Elder Ballard taught that just as a woman cannot conceive a child without a man, so a man cannot fully exercise the power of the priesthood to establish an eternal family without a woman. In other words, in the eternal perspective, both the procreative power and the priesthood power, or the ecclesiastical priesthood power, are shared by husband and wife. And so I think through the temple and through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation, we really see men and women acting harmoniously with each other. One guards the veil of mortality and the other guards the veil to lead out of mortality. And they both help each other and they're both necessary. They both have distinct but equal roles. The priesthood isn't a pyramid scheme of, of men in a hierarchy over each other with women and children shunted to the side. Instead, man and women are an essential pair that help each other on the covenant path and help their posterity continue that progression. So anyway, those are just some of my thoughts, but uh, go look up Jonathan Stapley and Barbara Morgan Gardner and Sherry Dew. They've done wonderful work to really pave this way to understanding priesthood power for women better. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. I I really have loved Valerie Hudson's work and just how it, it challenges our assumptions, but does it in like a very very faith, a very faithful way. So I definitely recommend taking a look at her talk as well. She gave at the Fair Mormon Conference. It's called The Two Trees, as well as I interviewed Valerie. So you can go back and look at that episode as well. But just just really there's a lot I think we don't know, but there's also a lot of a lot of great resources out there that we can learn about this kind of stuff. Um so the next thing I wanted to discuss is what kind of advice would you have for people that, that struggle with the idea of the temple ceremonies changing over time? Well, I would empathize with them and, you know, just join them and say, I, I struggle with it too sometimes. I lament whenever the temple ceremonies change because I am a history nerd and an ancient scripture nerd. And I just love learning about the 1842 endowment ceremony and wish I could experience it back then. And so every time they make changes, I get a little sad, but ultimately I have absolute faith and testimony in 
uh, President Nelson, that he is leading this church and he is making inspired decisions. And we also have to remember that temple ceremonies have changed, not just in church history, but since the beginning of time. I mean, originally the Israelites worshiped uh, in the tabernacle in the wilderness. But before that, you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshiping on unhewn stone altars, and they didn't have temple structures in the same way. But then Moses comes along and says, we're changing this. We're going to do it in a tabernacle instead. And then fast forward several hundred years, and Solomon says, we're going to change this. We're going to build a proper house for the Lord, a permanent structure, and he builds Solomon's temple. And then fast forward to the reign of Herod and there's a new structure and then fast forward to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ comes along and says, we're changing everything. We no longer worship in temples such as this. These are the new uh, ordinances that you're asked to abide by. We're getting rid of animal sacrifice. And instead you're asked to live by these higher laws and he completely changes everything. And it was hard for the people back in first century Palestine to come to terms with that too. Peter struggled with the idea that they didn't need to be circumcised anymore or that they didn't need to abide by kosher laws anymore. Yet eventually he realized that this is God's work. And if this is what God commands, this is what we need to do. And so in 1920s and then in 1990 and then most recently in 2019 and uh, even just this past year, changes, major changes have been made to the temple ceremonies. And that shouldn't surprise or shock us when we see it in context of the history of humanity, that God works in different ways according to different times and circumstances. And he's going to adapt things for a different audience. What worked in 1842 is not going to work for a 21st century audience of Latter-day Saints. And we've seen that in a lot of the ways that uh, President Nelson has revised some of the wording of the endowment ceremony in 2019. And then who could have foreseen that we'd have a pandemic in 2020? And so the first presidency needed to make adjustments again to allow for better sanitation and hygiene practices in the temple, which often requires close contact between people. And so the work just continues and it goes forward. But that's not to say I still don't get sad sometimes. Like I mentioned earlier, as we were talking, there are certain aspects of a live endowment ceremony that I think really bring the ceremony to life that help you feel part of the temple ceremony. The actors slash officiators break the fourth wall, make you feel part of it. And the, it puts into perspective this ritual drama that you're going through, that you're role-playing to try to enter into God's presence again. Um, but at the same time, even though the frosting and the exterior of these ordinances change, the essence is always the same. Uh, they've never really gotten rid of important doctrinal points. It's always just little tweaks, little adjustments here or there as circumstances require, but the plan of salvation is always the same. The covenants we make are fairly static. The symbols that we receive are static and the clothing that we wear is still an important part of what we do in the temple. And so while it may be just a different experience than it was 10 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago and more, it's still the Lord's church and it's still his ordinances. 
I really struggled with it a lot, specifically in 2019, because that was the first time in my lifetime that major changes had been made, or rather I should say that was the first time since I had been endowed that major changes had been made to the temple ceremonies. And it gave me anxiety and I didn't like it because I thought that maybe I was nervous about what those changes were gonna be. But um, I had to just sit back and reflect on all that President Nelson has done and seen how he had been inspired in every step of the way. And what he's asked us to do has been very immediately relevant. His request for us to focus on home-centered church became really relevant within like six months when the pandemic hit and we needed to make sure we were more focused on our home worship since we couldn't gather in church and preparing the Come Follow Me curriculum. There've been time and time again when things that he's asked us to do have become quickly relevant and necessary for us to spiritually survive. And so what, as I was sitting back and, and reflecting upon what President Nelson's done that gave me hope and solace that it's okay that things are changing. I just need to get on board because <laughs> I need to eat my vitamins as, as President Nelson says and pick up my pace because the work is hastening forward and it's going forth in glorious magnitude. And the other thing that really helped me was um, the, so the changes to the temple ceremonies happened on like January 1st of 2019. And there had been rumors spreading because the Nauvoo temple, I guess was not closed on January 1st, but all other temples were because it was New Year's day. And so there were a few people who had gone to the Nauvoo temple that day and saw that there were changes and started spreading the rumors online. And so I was, I was nervous about what these changes were gonna be and if that was gonna shake my testimony if things were gonna change. But then I had a friend call me out of the blue. I hadn't spoken to him in a year or more and he just called me up on the phone and you know, said, have you heard about the changes? What do you think about them? And I'm like, I don't know, I'm really nervous. What if, what if things change? And what if it's not the temple I thought it was supposed to be? Like, what does this mean about God and revelation? And he just talked me through it. He talked me, he called me down and talked me through point by point all the things I was nervous about and how it doesn't really change the doctrine and how everything is still as the Lord wants it. And how he had a testimony that this is the temple is an institution of God. And that tender mercy, a friend calling me out of nowhere that I hadn't heard from in a long time, talking me through what the things that I was anxious about was a sign from heaven for me that God is leading this work and it's okay. You can, you can accept the changes and you can move forward and enjoy them. And so when I went to the temple the next morning to see what they were, I was overjoyed. It was a beautiful experience to see the little things that God had been putting in place so that many more people could be blessed and could enjoy the temple experience. Uh, since there were some things that were more confusing to people that were adjusted so that they could enjoy them better. And, and I think that's a wonderful thing. So I don't know if that helps a lot of people, but that is what helped me when I was struggling with uh, knowing what was gonna happen with the changes. And I know there's gonna be changes in the future and it's the revel, the restoration is an ongoing process, but that's what makes it exciting. Yeah, I think it's important for everyone to remember that the church is true, but the church is living. And I think if Joseph Smith were to come and see what the church is today, I think he'd still have a testimony of it, but he'd be shocked. And I think if we were to go, 
50, 100 years in the future, we'd be shocked what it looked like then. So I think it's just, it's important to be grounded in those essential doctrines, but then from there to kind of have a spirit of meekness, but also have that, have an open mind. Um, And you made a good point that Joseph Smith would have been shocked. And it's probably true because we have a quote from him. I don't have it pulled up right now. But right after he instituted the endowment for the first time in the upper story of the red brick store in Nauvoo, Illinois, 1842, he had uh, instituted the endowment for just like a select group of like six people. And one of them was Brigham Young. And he turned to Brigham Young and said, this is not ordered right. And so I'm, he essentially said, he's leaving it up to you, Brigham, to figure out the order and get things right and kind of perfect it. So even Joseph Smith knew that he had received the basics of what the endowment was supposed to be from the Lord. And he had received that revelation, but he knew it wasn't perfect and it still needed to be refined and polished to make it make sense and make it flow better and make it practicable for the Latter-day Saints. And so Brigham Young did a ton of innovation in his time to, as Joseph Smith requested, order the ordinances properly so that they would make more logical sense. And they underwent changes with Wilford Woodruff and Joseph F. Smith and you name it. And so it's it's a very different experience than what Joseph Smith did, but I think he would be maybe surprised, but also thrilled that so many people are now able to experience these ordinances because of the changes we've made, making it a little faster, a little more efficient, and also making it more palatable for a 21st century audience. Yeah, I love that. God, God loves all his kids and he's gonna he's gonna work differently through different time periods and through different people and yeah, there's just, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, the Lord, or Nephi said that the Lord speaks unto us according to our language and according to our understanding. And that changes based on time period, based on culture. And so as the church becomes a global church, it means that we're going to have to speak in more universal terms and, and less American-centric terms or terms and vocabulary that's familiar to American English-speaking people. And we've got to be thinking about a global church. We've got to be thinking about 21st century needs and circumstances and so i think it's wonderful yeah i think it's wonderful too and i think you bring up a good point that yeah we are a worldwide church and i think maybe things don't always move as fast as people want to move want want things to move at times but we we're a worldwide church and we're going to try to do things the same way universally and maybe at times that might mean changes happen a little bit slower than some people want them to happen but I just think we can we can have confidence in our leaders and just trust God that things are going to work out. It's true. Um, I guess just in closing, do you have any other thoughts you want to share in the temple before we close? Oh, I guess that's a really big question because I have so many thoughts on the temple. But I, I would just bear my testimony that I, I love the temple and I think it's true. I think that the endowment ceremony and the specific covenants we promise to make to obey the law of sacrifice and obedience and chastity and consecration, etc. All those things are inspired by God and they will help us become better human beings and they will help us become more like God. And that's the ultimate purpose. One of my favorite scriptures when it comes to the temple is Moses 139. For this is my work, and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. When we understand that God's greatest purpose and his glory is to glorify us and to make us like him, to bring us into his presence and enjoy eternal exaltation, 
it puts an entirely different perspective on the history of the world. This isn't a benevolent boss or dictator trying to thrust us to heaven or hell. This is a God, a father who loves his children and is doing everything in his power to bring us back to him, to help us come home through learning how to live certain commitments in life, learning how to obey certain commandments and learning how to make mistakes, to sin and to learn how to use the atonement to repent and try to be better and improve ourselves and ultimately improve others. Uh, the temple is not just about ourselves. The endowment starts off uh, with our individual commitments. It's about obeying God, living those commandments, but eventually those covenants kind of evolve to be expanding to other people. You need to also, in addition to obeying God's commandments, you need to also consecrate. You need to think of your community. You need to now be selfless. And when it comes to the law of chastity and the sealing ordinance, do that with someone else. Do that with one other person and try to be selfless. Think outside yourself and, um, and be not just a holier person, but a holier uh, marriage union and a holier community of believers. And when you can do that, then you are ready to enter into God's presence and to be like him. Because in the temple, we learn the nature of God. We learn what he is like by learning what we need to do to become like him. And so attend the temple, study as much of the temple as you can. As I study the temple, it just gets better with age. It just gets more interesting and more inspiring the more I dive deep. And this is the path to eternal life. There is no other way except through Jesus Christ, uh, which we learn about in the temple. So I would just, yeah, the temple is the best place on earth and I hope everyone can enjoy it. I wish everyone would enjoy it like I do. And I hope that uh, these videos I'm trying to put together on my YouTube channel, Temple Light, can help some people maybe envision the temple a little differently and appreciate a little more and get a little bit closer to God the next time they go to the temple. I love all that. Thank you for your thoughts. And just for those who are listening, um, definitely check out her videos. And I just want to bear my witness as well that I know that the temple will, it'll add, it'll add strength in your life and that those covenants can have a lot of power. And I know there's still a lot of restrictions with COVID, but if you have access to the temple, go take the time to, to go there. And if you're not, if you're not worthy right now, make those changes in your life. Um, they might be big changes. They might be small changes, but whatever they are, they're, they're worth making. And you have a savior that, that paid that price that you can make those changes. Um, so just go ahead and do that. And you have a lot of positivity ahead of you. And there's a lot that you can become in this life. So take advantage of that. Um, thanks so much for being on Jasmine. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. We'll see you next.